0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Shaubert Show. I'm really excited to have our next guest, Chris Yi, who I've been fortunate enough to know around like 10 years now, I believe. Welcome to The Schubert Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Schubert. It's been great. Yeah, I think over
1: 10 years... Something like that.
0: Yeah, wow, wow. And I'm excited to hear that, you know, you probably haven't shared your story at all in a podcast. So thanks, and I'm honored you have, you're going to be part of our show. Just maybe you want to introduce yourself to the general audiences listening in. Who is Chris e?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm Chris. I was, uh, I was born in Shanghai, moved to Toronto, and grew up most of my life in Toronto, Canada. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get into tech, like probably many of your listeners and yourself, Chaubert. And, you know, it's really made a big impact on my life and given me a lot of opportunities that I don't think I otherwise would have had. I come from a very kind of modest family that immigrated to Canada. So, you know, my parents were always between jobs and working really hard to support us, but uh, got into gaming and really had a love for that as my, you know, entry into tech and um, decided to build a gaming company. I was fortunate enough to get in at a really interesting time during the birth of the mobile game industry. And yeah, started from there. That's awesome. How old were you when you moved to Toronto? Yeah. So I came out when I was about three and I was, uh, it was really early, but my mom actually left me when I was about one and a half to come to Canada. And she was the only one to come by herself. And then off of her efforts, she was here for about a year by herself and away from her firstborn, which was myself. And then she brought me and my dad over and then my grandma and my grandpa.
0: So uh, I'm really that fortunate that, that happened. Um, yeah. And what kind of, I'm curious, what kind of businesses or things did your folks do you know, back then? And then when did you get into like tech? You said you got, you got into tech pretty young. Were you like a kid playing with stuff? You know, was it through high school or college?
1: I'd say probably starting in like late elementary school. You know, I remember having the, my first console was a Super Nintendo. And, you know, in, I think it was probably about grade seven. I had a friend who was really into PCs and computers and, you know, he taught me how to build a PC. And so I built my own and then, you know, I was running the 56K modem with the nah, nah, noise yeah. uh, to connect to the internet. and But that was my, you know, my first instance of being able to create something with a computer. And I love to, to tinker around with Photoshop. I did some light programming. I never got too heavy into that until a little bit later, but, you know, built some websites and things like that back then. And I, I did a bit of design as well. So I was just fortunate to be in an environment here where there were at least a few people that had similar interests as I did, you know, nerding out
0: on computer games and, and things like that. That's awesome. It's a pretty good well-roundedness with like the gaming. You did some like hardware, fun little play with building your PC to like design Photoshop, you said to code it's pretty cool that you could uh, understand at a young age. Speaking of like fifty six k modem, and I I also with some friends developed uh, made our own computer. I remember back in the day when the, when you're on the internet, you light, dial up and you're like, okay, I'm excited, I'm finally on. And my mother would pick up the phone and be like, hello, hello. I'm like, no, you just disconnected the internet. This <laughs> <It just laughs> definitely yeah. ages me with that topic. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, that you know, it wasn't that long ago that that was the environment. So. You know I think I think
0: looking back on those times, I think it makes you kind of grateful to see how far we've come. But pretty incredible to be like, oh, we're discussing like five G now and satellite yeah. connectivity to, besides fiber connectivity. So yeah, absolutely. And then when did you get into like the gaming side? And uh, did you stay in Toronto for like college, or did you move out? You know, I know you. Yeah. Gone.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my first exposure to, I took a computer science course in high school to learn basic and then in grade 11 to learn, you know, some basic Java as well. And I remember, you know, I was never, I never had it in my mind to like go to uh, college for computer science. That wasn't really a consideration for me, but I, I remember that I really enjoyed it and the problem solving nature of it. So I was thankful that I was able to do a little bit of coding gave me some basic understanding of things. And I, I was able to kind of carry that Forward when we started the company. But, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a movie director. Like that was kind of my dream. And one of the schools that I applied to was uh, the Toronto Film School, which is a little known, not too well known around. But uh, yeah, it was like the only thing in my area that offered that. So that's where I looked. But then I ended up going a more traditional path into business school at York.
0: Yeah. You know, Asian parents and such. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business school engineering doctor you, you kind of already had the engineering check mark through high school um so yeah that's cool and then tell me about the you know this is something like you know you started one of like probably the oldest mobile gaming studios of or original ones with you when did that happen it's like tell us about you and your co-founder or co-founders and then like what does the name mean i'm curious
1: Yeah. 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 Everybody asks that question. So I I started the company in 2009 officially with my co-founder Mark. And, you know, I had at that point uh, been working with Mark for probably about a year and a half, two years. And we started out actually building apps on Facebook. So we built one of the early gifting apps that was really popular. It was called Twisted Trick or Treating, where you could go and visit your friends kind of virtual houses and send them a gift. It was a little bit different from, you know, I don't know if you remember Rock You and Slide yes, um, do, and, yep. and the kind of early gifting apps on Facebook. Those were the things that kind of took off fairly early. And there was a period of time when, you know, people thought, you know, maybe Slide would be the bridge between a bunch of social networks and that there would be a lot of social networks in the world as opposed to just one. And so, you know, I remember when they got kind of big valuations and big funding rounds from Sequoia and Kleiner. And so, yeah, we built a, a gifting app. That's how, that's kind of how we started. We ran that gifting app for probably about a year and a half and we changed it and modified it through all of the holiday seasons and kind of adapted it. So it started with twisted Halloween or sort of twisted trick or treating around Halloween time. And then we moved it to being called twisted Christmas and the interaction model is a little bit different rather than coming in and just sending a gift. You'd come in and send a request for a gift. And then basically, you know, you send a notification to your friends and then, uh, or a bunch of friends, and then they come back. And, you know, if they actually answered the call, then they would yeah. come and choose a gift to give you. It fit the kind of trick-or-treating model really well. So that's where we got the idea. And then we kept adding features. And one of the features we added was a leaderboard. And when we added a leaderboard, you know, it was like, I think we, we did a deployment the, on October 29th. And I remember, you know, we deployed it, woke up the next day noticed her servers were down and apparently a, a, like a 14 year old teenage girl somewhere in the Midwest had r- written a script to send tens of thousands of gifts to all of her friends. So she was at the top of the leaderboard and kind of took down her servers right before our busiest kind of day initially. But th- yeah, it was, it was a really, it was a really thrilling time because yeah. you know, the floodgates were wide open and it was a brand new platform. So felt like anything was a possibility and, you know, the, yeah, you know, Facebook made it really compelling to go and build a Facebook app at that time, instead of just building a, a plain old website that you had to go and drive traffic to, because they had so much traffic and they were kind of freely driving it everywhere.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. Facebook and Zuckerberg were like the first to really start the app store model. So that was like incredible times, wild west. You are saying, I think, slide like Rocky was definitely like a big poster child company. There was a, I think, like serious business Zeus and a bunch of others that came out of it. Yeah. I and like, uh, was no, a t- ton like, yeah. of really interesting ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a shame that they took it down and Zingo actually probably is the biggest one of all, uh, That's if you right. kind of step back, which is now like purely like more mobile than like a social, but yeah. And even like Facebook launched that FB fund, which was like competing with like TechStars and Y Combinator for a little bit when they actually launched the App Store, and that's like Zimride and Lyft and a bunch of other companies came out of that and yeah. they continue that as well. But it, the fact that Steve Jobs took advantage of the App Store model and now it's you know obviously multi-billion-dollar market with like the the iOS App Store, the Google Play App Store, and beyond. So when did you guys, you said 2009, you pivoted, did you continue this, um, you know, this holiday and gifted app? Did you create another one?
1: I mean, what happened was like gifting found to be very, very seasonal. It'd be very busy during certain holidays and it was cool. We were actually able to drive some early revenue. And this was when I was in third year university. I remember making a bunch of calls to CPG companies and we happened to get the attention of a couple companies. But Nestle was one of them. And you know, they just happened to have some experimental marketing budget. And our app had, you know, when we launched it, we got about a million users in a week. So that kind of blew our minds. And that's amazing. What is just never those listening? We didn't even know what that meant at the time. Like we didn't yeah. know if this was like a normal thing or it's like everybody gets this, or you know what I mean? We had no context because we were just, you know, kids trying to build an app, right? But that kind of started it all. And then, you know, Nestle came in relatively quickly. We said we had a lot of users and reach mostly in the United States. This was before Facebook pages. This was before Facebook was monetizing directly on their platform themselves. They had, you know, uh, they were selling banner ads through Microsoft on the sidebar. And that's the main way that Facebook was monetizing. And yeah, Nestle paid us, I think it was like $15,000 or whatever. So you could send these digital coffee crisps and Kit Kats and Smarties to your friends And they would be the, you know, the priority gifts that all of our users would see. And then there'd be a a whole bunch of other, you know, fun little images that we created around Halloween, like mummy hands
0: or, you know, tombstones and things like that. Yeah, that's awesome that you were able to actually get the brand like a Nestle to convince them. The 1 million install or users and daily actives, those are like, that's like a big threshold. And everybody always asks like, what is the best? It's always, you know, if you get the million number, even like a YouTube following and all that it's that's the next level thing. So the fact that you got in literally like in a week or a month is just uh, incredible, the growth and organic lift you got. Yeah.
1: Facebook was smaller at the time too, but, but it was just, you know, I think they they were really quick to push out this development platform and they really wanted it to be truly a platform that people could launch businesses off of. So it was very surprising to us. It was kind of eye opening at what the possibilities were. I think over time, You know, everyone started to rush in and notice that you could get that kind of traffic. And and then people figured out how to bend the rules a little bit and get the edge. And Facebook was racing to sort of put some safeguards around the utilization of the platform. So that's, you know, that all happened over the course of two years. And then, you know, after two years, I think the window had kind of closed to be able to launch apps easily and get like that much traffic. But if you were there at the start, it was, you know, very fertile, fertile ground for, you know, that kind of traffic. and then Yeah. And so we launched it initially in, in probably around 2017, I think. And then by 2019, we were, you know, having experience adding some game mechanics to the gifting app and seeing the power of those game mechanics. We were looking to build something with more regular engagement, more recurring engagement, more longevity to the users. And gaming was a natural step in that direction. So we started off building a game called Superheroes Alliance. And it was a sort of largely text-based role-playing game. And, you know, we saw a few others that were there. So there was an early game called Mob Wars. I believe, you know, the founders of Mob Wars really well, Dave Meistree and the team there. And, you know, yeah, like we saw how excited the Facebook community was getting over a simple game like that. So, you know, we were web developers at the time. And so, it was easy for us to kind of just hack together the rest of the, the functionality and things like that around uh, a superheroes version of that. So that's how we came up with the idea for uh, Superheroes Alliance and we launched it. And, you know, I think right away we started, we didn't get nearly as many users when we went, launched the original gifting app, but um, we got quite a few users. I would say, you know, within a month we had about, uh, it's like 25 DAU, 25,000 DAU. And people were starting to spend money as well so we had monetization built in
0: it was a really exciting time yeah i mean that's pretty exciting and you actually pivoted to like a game did you guys like learn the mechanics from from like watching mob wars and other stuff you know like that's one question i have did you go back on facebook and launch that did you do a hybrid of facebook and mobile apps
1: so it was just facebook to begin with and it was facebook for probably about a year and then you know i think We landed on games for a number of reasons. One, we definitely wanted to build something with, you know, more regular engagement patterns and gaming was a pretty natural fit. Gaming at the time, I think, was like something like 40 or 50 percent of the Facebook platform. So it definitely became a pretty dominant theme of apps there. And the second was like we were gamers as well. My co-founder, Mark, he built a StarCraft community website previously, and he was, you know, a big StarCraft and Brood War player, So he had done that. And, you know, I also played a lot of video games growing up and, you know, got inspired. I remember there were some PC games, like cheap PC games that we used to play. There was one called Dope Wars that was really cool. Uh, It was a downloadable client and, you know, it was text-based as well. But I just remember being so engaged in that game for a span of maybe like two weeks. And so really drew on some of those experiences when we started building because, we weren't given a, a huge canvas to build on either because none of the tools really existed to build games on the web. It was quite difficult to get anything super high fidelity. And, and so we had to, you know, do something relatively basic and see what we could make to fit that.
0: Nice. And then at this point, were you guys, because uh, you said it was from 2007 to 2009. At this point, did you guys change names? You can, and you went mobile. How big is a team? Did you raise capital or not? Were you kind of just cash flow focused? Would be interesting. Yeah. So, so
1: 2009 is when we launched superheroes. I think it was around September. We joined an incubator in Toronto called. Uh, it's no longer around, but it was called Extreme Startups. And you know, we kind of caught the kind of startup. Uh, we we engaged in the startup community here, and we're introduced to you know all these interesting things that were happening around the world, like YC. I think YC started it in 2008, I believe. And it was, yeah, it was exciting. We raised a little bit of capital through the accelerator, but not much. It was about a quarter million dollars in total. But when we started raising capital, we had already launched the game. We were already generating some revenue with the game. And, you know, we had already done some light hiring of contractors to help us with art and um, other components that we needed. But the design and development Mark and I kind of did all of that initially to launch the game. And so we, we kind of just made it up as we went along based off of
0: games that we had played and experiences that we were trying to draw from. That's awesome. And that's cool that you had, uh, you were part of one of the original like startups at Extreme. I, I remember those guys. I remember even touring that space in downtown Toronto and then they opened in University Avenue in Palo Alto. So they bridged between Silicon Valley and Toronto pretty well. And I think they still kind of do that. And then, it's great that you kind of just, uh, just with based on the small seed fund, you kind of you know scaled up and just ramped up at that point. Yeah, what was yeah. like you know the aha moment? Because around, I guess for me, you know, I was at Mob Clicks and then I was at Addiction, and uh, when I moved to Addiction, that was when like in app purchase became a thing. So initially, the App Store launched, the revenue streams were you had to get a paid to free. So there's the two options: the paid was usually like ninety nine cents. Sometimes you charge like three to four be like uh, you know two ninety nine or 499 or these type of options. And then there's a, uh, you know, free with at that point, it was just like advertising, convincing the studios to monetize with ads. And then within like, I think it was 2012 in app purchases happened. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think someone I was talking to yesterday, just refreshed my memory on this is uh, there were games that were paid, like core based games that basically charged a lot of money for basically for an upgrade. like, oh, you have a free end of, in the paid version, get the paid version, unlock everything at that point. And then people, or they would have like multiple paid. And so there was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So paid. And then Apple's like, here's this new product called in-app purchase. Just keep the app and charge people products within the app store. So do you remember these days? So I remember this really well. So, you know, on Facebook, what I
1: remember is... You know, there was a guy in Vancouver, a company called Super Rewards, and there was another company in the valley called OfferPal, and they allowed us to kind of monetize more easily on web and on Facebook. They provided this sort of like banner thing. And the one key thing that they, that was a dirty secret is it was ads, but the ads weren't the main method of monetization. It was this little PayPal button that they had at the side that enabled in-app purchases essentially before in-app purchases became a thing on Facebook. And, you know, later in my career, I was able to meet Jason Bailey and his team that, you know, he built super Awards at, at Eastside Games and, uh, or before Eastside Games. So that was really cool and interesting how things come around like that. But, um, yeah, that was the original kind of like in versus on Facebook. We went on. So my story with the iPhone is, you know, I got an iPhone in high school. I watched the keynote that Steve Jobs gave and I was just blown away. And I'm like, I have to have this device. Yeah. It wasn't available in Canada originally. It didn't support Canadian carriers. So I remember buying it on eBay for about a, like 1200 bucks. It was like all the money that I had at the time. And I got the phone in fourth year university, but I was using it on Wi-Fi in Canada. And I was just blown away by how kind of magical the device was. I remember taking a, a graduation trip with a bunch of friends through Europe and I was you know carrying my iPhone everywhere, wherever we could get Wi-Fi. And And yeah, it was just a great experience. It made the trip a lot easier to to navigate as well, um, to just have a mobile internet in your pocket. And it didn't have an app store at the time, but then by, I think, 2010, the app store appeared. And so we knew we wanted to be on mobile right away. Our game was built for web. So the quickest way we could get there was building a mobile wrapper to get on the app store. And so we did that and built like a mobile web view version of it. So kind of hacked it together, got in some native sounds, things like that. And initially what you had to do is you had to do what you said was like multiple SKUs. We had a 299 SKU, a 499 SKU, a 1099 SKU, but they would all reference the same database. So you you would enter your player credentials. And if you bought the 1099 SKU, that would count as a 1099 IAP essentially in your account. And then there was a free one, of course. And then quickly after that, You know, Apple decided that we need to make in-app purchases a thing because people are doing these things and abusing the app store and not
0: really selling premium apps. But that's all how in-app purchases, I think, came about on mobile. Yeah, it's crazy. It just feels like yesterday, all this, and it's uh, definitely well over 10 years. And even around then, that was like the Wild West of distribution. When I was doing the app a day stuff where everybody like you boost it, get up the charts. That was the thing. The- get up the charts was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right. part uh, was literally like uh, you know, like top one hundred billboard from music and top movies that are on the theaters. That was it for the app store. And people would go and, you know, you wanted to be in the top of like three or five or ten because that's where people would just organically go and install after you get those installs. For and then sure. Over time those, you know, got deprecated when it comes to the incentive installs and they get the bigger companies just get bigger. And I'm curious what like explain a little bit like the, the evolution of like you can games. Like from there, what did you guys do? What kind of games you created? And then I know, you know, fast forward to now, you guys obviously do a lot of like IP-based driven apps. And that's like definitely in one of those discussions very difficult to bridge, like, oh, traditional mobile web with like IP. And you guys have done a fairly decent job. I think you could say like Scopely. There's only a few I can name like off the top of my head. Obviously, you're the company that acquired uh, your, your, one of your games, Jam City. So yeah, I'd love to hear kind of your the, the growth trajectory of like you can games in the last 10 years and what you've done. And where's that now? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: the beginning was kind of more male-oriented role-playing games, text-based role-playing games. And we built a number of those titles off of this one engine that we kept adding to where it contained the functionality for, you know, more mid-core-like games. It was a really good starting experience because we went deeper on mechanics and clans and ways to collaborate with other players that I don't think the early casual games afforded at the time. So it was a great experience. And, you know, we were doing about maybe 7 or $8 million in revenue within three years. So it was really fast. It kind of when I think back on it, I can, you know, observe for what it is. But as it was happening, you know, it was just so busy and so fast. And we were just looking to kind of keep the games alive, keep adding content to make sure that people weren't quitting and, and engaged. Um, yeah. So that was 2009, 2012. And then in 2012, we started getting interested in and in branching out. You know, we had at that time launched a couple failed RPGs. And we noticed that we were getting a little less competitive because people were starting to build natively for the iPhone and take advantage of what the improving graphics on the iPhone looked like while we had made this bet on HTML5 and, you know, that going somewhere. And, you know, that turned out to be the wrong bet. So we started developing, you know, what became one of the notable titles from You Can Bingo Pop uh, in 2012. And the reason we made a decision to go into bingo was just you know, we thought it was a really interesting category. We didn't really know that much about it. And, you know, we just saw that the market opportunity around casino as a category and bingo as sort of like the second largest category within casino was really interesting. Second to to slots, obviously. So we were like, Hey, you know, slots look super competitive. And there's some incumbents that have really carved out a niche here, but bingo doesn't look All that different from slots, you know, we think we can build here and we think we can borrow some of the experience that we've had in mid-core into casual. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a lot of the mid-core mechanics make it into casual games and slowly all categories across mobile got more and more hardcore, if you will. Yeah. Um, Because players were looking for
0: deeper experiences and more engaging things that they had seen before. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you mentioned this. So slots definitely is probably the number one and especially around like 2012, 13, it was like one of the hottest verticals to do in mobile games. And it was very expensive though, like to acquire a user for slots was one of the most expensive to do. So however, if you did have them, they come and retain and actually spend was like immense and covered any other kind of game, even more than like, I would say RPG. Uh, Yeah. And then the fact that you actually took like bingo which had obviously more classic appeal and it is more casino based and then use like a kind of core and casual component to it. I think you guys were able to create like a real good brand. And then you did, I think you eventually did social, which became very viral, like the component within that game. And yeah, at- we, you know, we didn't come at it as casino
1: experts. We had gone to some bingo halls just to experience what bingo was like in the real world prior to, mobile gaming and I, you know we had some fun outings with the team as well it was maybe a bit awkward for everybody else cuz it was a room full of older women usually and then a bunch of young startup people <laughs> playing bingo together but uh, it was a really cool experience to see and we definitely felt like there was a market for it and then that's i think you're right in saying that we brought it in a much more casual feel to the game and in the design of the game cuz we just didn't know that also kind of made it really tough because at that point we knew mid-core pretty well and how to kind of balance out a mid-core economy. It was very different for bingo. So we had to learn that all over again. And we definitely didn't get product right on the first go. But the one thing that was to our advantage was the timing. We just I think we entered that category at a really, really seminal time where installs were relatively cheap. And because we built a pretty fun game, even though our economy was busted, we were able to acquire a lot of users or retention was pretty good and we were an early beta partner for Facebook installs where, you know, I think I remember the earliest point we could buy installs for about 25 cents or something. And they weren't, they weren't in installs. They were off of the Facebook ad network. So they were really compelling users that allowed us to really build up the user base around bingo pop. And then it gave us some affordance to go and fix some of these leaky bucket kind of economy issues that we had.
0: Yeah. And why don't we talk about some of this stuff like uh, for like the general people listening and obviously in our industry, they know this, right? Like um, this is at the time, like this is when all the terminologies in our space, mobile, mobile gaming came in with like, you know, retention, you know, monetization, lifetime value, LTV, you know, return on ad spend, ROAS, KPIs, keep performance indicators and all this like what were some of the key ones for you and you can, and even to this day, as far as like data metrics and usability, you know, what do you guys do to like sustain? Is it also like live ops? Do you have like cool live op experiences for the users like within the games? I'm curious, like when did it all did this happen for uh, you know, yourselves?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it happened through bingo. So we, you know, from 2013, when we launched the game to all the way to like, maybe 2018. For that five years, we really focused in on bingo and we slowly shuttered some of the other stuff, some of the mid stuff and some of the other games that we were building to focus in on bingo. And we developed a product process of iteration where, you know, we stack rank features. We try to estimate the KPIs and the impact on KPIs that we care about with respect to specific features to determine what the roadmap for the game would be like. It wasn't purely... You know, I'm making it sound a lot more science than it, it was, but before it was just like, what are the best game ideas we've got? And then we try to professionalize that with, well, what are we actually trying to achieve more specifically within our user base with these feature sets and with these plans? Uh, because we, you know, we just had so many different ideas and we had also gone down the road of executing on the wrong ideas for other games in the past as well. So we needed a product process that was, that was rigorous. something I mean, in terms of KPIs and core metrics, I think you know you can get really deep on these things, but I I really like to go back to the basics and look at simple things like retention. Are people having fun? Are they getting you know? You mix that with some qualitative things. It's like what is the daily habit of this game look like, and how you can build towards that. So we tried to emphasize those things, and, and I think over time we got better at quantifying them. It got certainly quite sophisticated, you know looking at just different conversion metrics for different products within the game because we would offer all types of different offers and then it got even more complicated when you go and do things like segmentation and you offer them to different types of users within your game but i you know at the end of the day you're building a fun experience it, it fits into someone's life you know in a daily or weekly habit so you have to make sure it kind of conforms to you know the value that a customer is going to get out of
0: engaging with your game or your, you know, your app. Yeah. And honestly, like, again, with the success you had with Bingo Pop for I mean, five years, been an incredible run for that game, which pretty much unlocked um, the IP-driven games, right? When did you guys decide, like, okay, this is the direction going, and you got, like, really high-quality IP that's traditional, that's, like, 30, 40-plus years old, some of which is, like, Millionaire, the, yeah. the TV show Jeopardy, the TV show, and so forth. You know, like, when was that kind of timeframe?
1: So we launched the Jeopardy game in 2017, and it was around 2016 that we started chatting with Sony Pictures, who owns the Jeopardy IP. And yeah, they were just interested in building out the next chapter of Jeopardy on mobile. They thought mobile was going to be a very, very important platform, or had grown to be a very important platform that they wanted to get up to date on. And bingo was actually what, what they noticed us for. They had yep. seen that we had built a, a really great bingo game in, the, in that space, and that we were open to working with the IPs at first it was a bit jarring just working with such a large company but i think we were fortunate in the the deal that we struck and the team that we were working with they were very supportive the ip wasn't very onerous you know there was a sort of like a, a go between team which was the kind of mobile team at sony that sort of was the bridge or padding between us and the actual ip holders which run the tv show so they really helped us you know, make sure that we were well supported through the development. And they were, they're very supportive with distribution as well when we were launching because they have a, there's a a Jeopardy newsletter and a a community that they manage that, you know, of people that love that brand and the show. So there's a lot of different
0: touch points that we were able to leverage inside of Sony Pictures. Yeah, that's amazing. Did they reach out or did you guys reach out um, to them? And then secondly, my, my question would be like, how did you, figure out the mechanics of the classic game like that classic game show game yeah 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 the mobile um, experience and be effective because there's been a lot of flops right and this has been one that's done well and it's still sustaining itself which is like you know telling in my opinion so
1: right yeah so we um I can't remember exactly. It might've been a GDC that we originally met. And I think initially, because we didn't know each other very well, we actually answered an RFP that they put out for like a casual trivia game. And so, you know, they enjoyed that conversation and that's how you know things kind of kicked off. As we got into it, there was, design was tricky. Like we, as a game studio, I think you kind of have to pick your focus. So some game studios, like the hyper casual studios, they have much more of an ad driven model and, you know, they make most of their money off of ads. And, you know, it's a totally different play there where you're focused on acquiring a lot of users at the top of the funnel for very, very cheap. And you're showing them a bunch of ads and maybe 90% or 80% of your of your monetization is coming through ads. We were very much the opposite where we tried to build games that lasted years, where we had customers that played and retained within the games for years and so with a brand like jeopardy i think they really liked the approach that we took to building a loyal user base and you know we were able to launch a trivia game to being you know one of the yeah the top grossing trivia game in jeopardy when we launched it in iap and kind of flipped that model so it wasn't it wasn't ad, as ad based you know i think we were doing 70 percent of the revenue still off of iaps as opposed to through ads
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then we kind of, we followed that up
1: in the second year, uh, launching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And that kind of just, you know, deepened our experience in the trivia space. It's a different brand, different format of show, but gave us a bunch of things to play with that were different from the Jeopardy show. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, and, And I like kind of doing multiple successive things within a category because I think, you know, you just learn a lot the first time you do it. And it's a different experience the next time you do it. So Millionaire was, when we launched it, kind of beat Jeopardy is the top grossing trivia title on the app stores. So, you know,
0: it went really well. And I think development was a little bit smoother as well. That's exciting. And with like the time that we have uh, remaining, I, I, I'm a big believer of like asking, especially because we're in technology, everybody in their thought process about the future. So for Chris Yee, you know, what do you see you can now in the future, you know, I noticed you're obviously been in a big advocate of like the Web3 metaverse, you know, crypto NFT stuff What, you know, where are you there? You know, what's your yeah. And then as an investor, what do you look at to invest in? You know, these are a few things I thought would be interesting to hear. So it's quite an exciting time right now, I think, because it feels like
1: we're back to sort of experimenting now. Free-to-play and mobile is very mature. It's a really large industry and market. And so, you know, the last couple of years were pretty challenging in terms of the changes that happened with, you know, all the concerns around privacy and these changes that Apple has made. But um, overall, people are experimenting again, you know, people are experimenting with subscription based models that are starting to see some traction, which is really cool. There's larger subscription platforms that are trying to be launched by Apple, by Netflix, by Amazon, by, you know, I think pretty much everybody's thinking about the what's worked so well in other forms of entertainment, the Netflix model. And then people are, I think, coming at it from another angle as well, where they're trying to gamify other industries, right? And I think we're seeing a lot of that, like loyalties being gamified in the Web3 space. I think there's a lot of overlap with different forms of loyalty, but there's also the desire to try to build games using blockchain primitives. So all that to me is just, it's people experimenting. I don't know that we've seen anything that like immediately clicks and like, this is going to be the next model. I still think we're very much in that experimental phase, both in terms of subscription and Web3, but it is really promising that people are creating. And in today's environment where it's harder to raise money and the cost of capital has gone up, you know, what you have remaining are people that are very dedicated to want to see great products emerge. So that's what we're focused on. It's just, you know, we've got a number of experiments in the Web3 space that we're working with partners on. And then we've got some experiments in subscription as well that we're quite excited about.
0: That does sound exciting. And then on a personal note, uh, you know, do you, you advise startups and invest in them? Are you preactive or just more just like a specific scenario that this happens?
1: Yeah, I try to spend maybe about like, you know, one day a month or so. So not too much time on investments and kind of advising startups. But I like the energy of really young teams that are starting out. And I think, I think about the type of advice that I would want, or that I would have wanted at that age. There's definitely a few folks that have been very influential in my entrepreneurial journey. So I was just hoping to kind of pass that along to, to some companies out there. And head forward in terms of just like what I like to invest in and what I focus on, it's, it's just, uh, it's either like friends that I know really well that I've built a relationship over a long time that, you know, I've invested in their companies. I've invested in a few funds as well, just to get a feel for how the institution look at it and just to understand the systematic mindset behind investing. And yeah, I like, you know, I tend to focus on, I've done a few gaming companies, but yeah, I've invested across the board, some web three companies, some, you know, fintech
0: companies as well, all across the board. Great, man. Well, this has been a pleasure, Chrissy, to joining the Shabert Show and telling your story. Hopefully everybody, you know, enjoyed it and, uh, you know, like it and share and everything. And again, thanks, Chris, for being part of the Shabert Show. And I'm excited that this was maybe your first podcast. You shared this story. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.